Morning. Everybody good? All right. Um, my name is Derek. I'm the pastor here, so if you're new with us, that's who I am. If you picked up a Bible at the door, the page number is um, 186 today, Ruth chapter 4. As um, Jeff mentioned, this is the last of four sermons in this book, and there's four chapters in the book, so we've been like racing through uh, a chapter a week. Have you enjoyed it, for those of you who have been here? Good? Well, that's good because it's over. So um, <laughs> I'm very excited. Let me tell you a little bit about uh, the, the thing with the story of Ruth has been um, that it shows us that just stuff happens. Sometimes really bad things happen uh, to us. Of course, we see that in the story uh, of Ruth and her mother-in-law, Naomi, and just the, the tragedy uh, that they suffered uh, with their husbands dying and their sons dying and so forth. And so it just the story begins for us in a real desperate place for people. And so if you were here a few weeks ago for week one, we just kind of moved through that. And, um, and so the, I would say that the, the thrust of the book is anchored to one of many things, and one of them is that life can sometimes be very, very, very stressful. And um, an interesting transition for us out of this series will be we have this in-between Sunday next week, um, Labor Day weekend, is that correct? You know, at which I will speak on the labor of love. I don't know. Um, <laughs> I'll have to consult the, uh, the cheesy pastor manual on that. But, um, but we're starting a new series after that. Um, it, this is so interesting, and I want you to hang with me here. I know it's just a commercial, but um, Paul wrote these letters to his young protege, Timothy, the Apostle Paul. And so we have those in the Bible, First and Second Timothy. And... Um, the, the premise under which they were written to Timothy was that Timothy was a pastor of a church in Ephesus, and he was completely stressed out. Like, he just wanted to bail on his job, bail on his calling. He just didn't want to be there anymore. So Paul writes in these letters, not just to help him deal with some of the specific things going on, but to also encourage him uh, to just kind of hang in there in the midst of a stressful time in life. And then in chapter 4, verse uh, 12, uh, in the first letter, Paul says to him, set the example, don't let anyone look down on you because you're young. So evidently he was younger. People were like, you kid, you can't run a church. And Paul says, don't, don't let that bother you. Instead, counteract that, not with great debate or here's, here's how I'm, you know, fit for the, for the gig, but counter that with, he says, the example, and the word, the Greek, there's the word tupos. Uh, set the example in, he lists five things. I want you to catch this, speech, life, love, faith, and purity. And I kept staring at those five words and then knowing the context of the letter which was written to Timothy under great stress, who was under great stress. Those are five things that always crumble when we're under stress, are they not? My speech, my life, which the word in the Greek there is character, integrity, uh, my love towards others, my faith and purity. Um, and so we're coming out, we'll be coming out of this story of Ruth, which is a, just an example of great distress, and into a very practical series on how to deal with that. So these two series actually go together, is what I'm trying to say. Uh, we're just sitting in the mess of, wow, this is a really tremendous, tragic story with some great finer points to it, but what do we do with that? So if you'll remain with us uh, over the next few weeks, you'll, you'll get a taste of how all this comes together as well. So we don't just make this stuff up as we go, people. Um, are you in chapter four? Are you ready? 
this is how it's going to work today. We have a lady from our church, uh, many of you may know, but many of you will not know until uh, at the end of the sermon, but she's going to share her story, which is about 10 minutes. It's got some slides, and, um, and it's a story that comes really right out of her own personal uh, experience of tragedy and the faithfulness of God and so forth. So my job today is simply to say a couple of things so that you can hear her. Uh, and so you're not going to get a tremendous amount of teaching today, to which there was much rejoicing uh, on the inside. But I will give you a few finer points from chapter 4. Let me do a very, very quick, and we'll just entitle this. If you haven't been here since the beginning of the series, this will be for you. Um, and for those of you who have been around, this may sound like repeat and it is, but let me just say a couple things before I get into chapter four. Um, the book of Ruth, I'm sick, by the way, I don't know if you can hear that. You can't? Oh, good. Okay, it's working. The Alka-Seltzer's working. Um, and so the, the story of Ruth is anchored in a couple things, and one of them is a word that appears in the story throughout, and it's this Hebrew word, hesed. So we have a slide for hesed. Again, we've seen this slide every week. Hesed is a Hebrew word that describes this kind of love and faithfulness and commitment that God has to you. And it is, by definition, not a faith or love or commitment that is based on anything that we've done or not done. It's just based on His covenant with us. And what's interesting about a covenant, at least on God's behalf, is it's a covenant that He created to make with us. And uh, it's, Hesed is like this, I'm obligating myself to be obligated to you. It's a very interesting sort of way of listening to that and hearing that, but uh, it's also a great Old Testament picture of what we would say is grace. Like great, we just, we, we imagine the New Testament is full of grace, and then the Old Testament is full of some sort of performance-based acceptance on God, but it's not. It's based in this hesed of God, this love and faithfulness and commitment that is not based on performance or how we're doing, but it's based on who God is and His commitment to us, which He created. And so He obligated Himself to be obligated to you and to me, which is phenomenal. Uh, Paul wrote in one of his letters to the Romans, uh, book of Romans, where he says, um, this is how God demonstrated his love for us. So he gives us an example, and if you're new to the Scriptures, this is a fantastic way of understanding this. He says, this is how God demonstrated his love for us, that while we were still sinners, which means we haven't changed our behavior, we haven't changed who we are, we haven't made the right corrections, uh, while we were still sinners, he died for us. So, not waiting on us to get better or to behave better, but he just make, he obligates himself to be obligated to us. And I hope that like, you've heard that throughout the, the story of Ruth. And the interesting, interesting thing about Ruth is that it is a story about that, and that word appears in the first three chapters, uh, almost like clockwork. And then, so we get to learn a little bit about how faith, faithful God is to these people because they're um, they're going through some tragedy. If you were here for week one, you learned that Naomi and Ruth both lost their husbands. Naomi lost her sons, who one of them was married to Ruth. So they're basically widows in the ancient world, which is not a good, it's not a good situation to be in. They end up in slavery, the sex trade, or death. And so this is their fate, at least this is how they see it. And then if you look back in chapter one, and this will get us into chapter four, believe it or not, um, it says in verse six, when she, and this is Naomi, heard in Moab, they had relocated to Moab because of a famine in Judah, when she heard while she was in Moab that the Lord, and the word for Lord there is the word Yahweh, so it's the name God, she had heard that Yahweh had come to the aid of 
uh, his people by providing food for, for them. So she's hearing that somehow in Judah, at the end of this famine, God is beginning to provide. So she's hearing this, and it says, Naomi and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. It seems like a throwaway verse, but it is the first of many what I call steps of faith in the story. Verses 1 through 5 in chapter 1 paint a pretty desperate picture of this is not going to end well for any of these two women. But in verse 6, it says here that Naomi at least makes a step. Small hope. She's hearing hearsay through the vine, down the river. However, she's hearing God is starting to provide for people. And so we're going to make the step and go back there in hopes that he will provide. So the whole movement of the story is based on this hope that God will provide, that God will come to their rescue in some way. Now, ultimately, what will rescue these two women will be a man. (laughs) Boaz will be the man. We met him a couple weeks ago. Uh, But what I say, I actually say that more culturally and historically than I do just in jest and in reality. But in that day, the best protection for a widow was a man. Not so much today, perhaps, maybe in other countries as well, for sure. But that's not so much the case now in our, in our day and time. But in that day and time, that was the reality. And so Naomi makes these steps, and, and if you follow the story, to basically marry Ruth off, her daughter-in-law, just try to get him married. And so Boaz catches her eye, and she catches Boaz's eye, and they end up together in chapter 3 in this real precarious threshing room floor scene that we went through last week, where the writer sort of builds it up like, here we go, cue the jazz. And then, nothing, it doesn't really tell us what happens, sorry. And then, and then it moves from there in, in chapter 3, where Boaz tells Ruth, who basically went to Boaz to ask him to marry her. It's essentially what's going on. That's what it means to redeem her. And he says to her, I'd love to. And then in verse uh, 12 of chapter 3, you don't need to turn there, but he says this to her. Um, She wants him to marry her because he's a a kinsman redeemer, which means that he's a relative of Naomi's dead husband, which means he has this, it's not a law, but it's this social obligation and responsibility to take care of the widows. And part of that means marrying perhaps the daughter-in-law. And so, he says to her, it's true that I'm near of kin, but there's someone who's nearer than me, which means I'm not the first in line, so we've got to do this right. So he says, stay here tonight in the morning. If he wants to redeem, use what's implied there, let him redeem. But if he's not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. So he's like, look, I want to marry you. I like you. I'd like to take care of you and your mother-in-law, but we need to do this right. And so we're going to go and meet with the guy who's actually first in line, and then if he says no, Um, then I'll marry you. So that's kind of where we left it off last week. Are you ready? Chapter 4? Here we go. Um, I will read the chapter, so just follow along. Meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gate. This is the next morning. Went up to the town gate, and he sat there. The town gate, if a city, a city was, there there were different definitions to say this is what constituted a city, and one of those was it had a wall around it. And we don't mean like a gate, like a picket fence that says welcome to Jericho or something. It's an it's a actual, uh, it's, a, it's a very fortified, you know, piece of architecture. And you can actually live in the city gate. Um, Rahab, the prostitute, lived in the city wall, the outer gate. And there's, so there's also rooms in there to meet. But it was also a place where 
business would take place, and it's a man's place. And so the, the gate to the wall was sort of a man's world. This is why we have in chapter 4, Naomi and Ruth don't say a word. The, the end of their story was in 3, chapter 3. Now we're in chapter 4 at sort of the, man's, the man cave of the city. And so now it's, uh, they're at the city wall, they're at the gate, the gate to the city wall, and this is where business transactions would take place, legal hearings would unfold, and so on. So that's sort of the historical picture there. They, t- they go to the, he sat down there, uh, verse 1 again, when the kinsman redeemer he had mentioned came along, Boaz said, quote, come over here, my friend, and sit down. <laughs> now the Hebrew for my friend is literally Mr. So-and-so. So he doesn't even give him a name. Yo, you, have a seat. Now, anonymity in a writing like this implies judgment. So this guy's a loser, is what the writer's saying. And it's what Boaz is saying. Uh, Loser, have a seat. (laughs) So he went over and sat down. And then it says Boaz took ten of the elders, that does not necessarily mean age, but that means there are men, these are men who hold positions of authority, of the town and said, sit here. And they did so. So now we have this meeting unfolding. Then he said to the kinsman redeemer, quote, Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling a piece of the land that belonged to our brother Elimelech. That's brand new information. We didn't know Naomi had property. And so, what does this mean? Well, I have about 30 seconds to explain a very complicated historical thing that we're looking back 3,000 years into history trying to figure out, but essentially probably what happened, that's what you say when you do ancient history, essentially probably what may have taken place, is that Elimelech must have owned this land, this is Naomi's dead husband, and sold it before they relocated to Moab. However, in the ancient Israelite land usage system, you could buy it back, you could redeem it. And it says that it belongs to Naomi, but what's really being said here is that Naomi had rights to the land and was able to, you know, glean from the land and the produce, but now she can't. And so what Boaz is doing is trying to get the land back into the family, and there was a clause for that in the ancient world. So he brings this up, and then he says in verse 4, I thought that I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest you buy it, in the presence of these seated here, and in the presence of the elders of my people. This is very cunning, very savvy by Boaz. By surrounding Mr. So-and-so with a bunch of people, the accountability goes very high. So his promise he makes to Ruth in chapter 3 about, I'm going to take care of you, I'm going to redeem you, is now amplified by the fact that he's made an audience, and this guy has got to weigh in. He can't say in private, because if it's in private, which the hearing would have been fine to do in private, if he says in private, sure, I'll do that, and he might not. But now he has witnesses, and Boaz is, you know, saying that. We're doing this in front of all these people. If you will redeem it, do so, but if you will not, tell me so I know, for no one has the right to do it except you and I am next in line. So, you know, Boaz is saying, if you don't do it, I'll do it. But either way, we need to get this done so that these two women can be taken care of. He says, I will redeem it. So there's some financial gain perhaps in his mind. This sounds like a good deal. And then Boaz says, this is the kung fu move in the whole story. On the day that you buy the land from Naomi and from Ruth, the Moabitess, you acquire the dead man's widow, inferred Ruth, in order to maintain the name of the dead with the property. What this means historically is... You need to have babies with Ruth so that those boys can grow up and own the land. 
and that the name of the family is still intact. So, hey, you want this land? It's nice and shiny over here. I'll take the land. And you get Ruth. Now, this seems like the the love story piece. Because if the guy said, okay, fine, I'll take them both, it's okay. I mean, in the end, Naomi and Ruth are taken care of. They don't marry Boaz. It's not the ending we wanted. You know, you think, okay, they get married in the credits roll. But it doesn't, I mean, it looks like it could go either way. But Boaz seems to put this in at the end as this, again, this cunning move so that he gets Ruth. I mean, it really reads that way. At this, the kinman redeemer said, I don't think so. That, then I cannot redeem it, he says, because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself. I cannot do it. So he relinquishes himself from this responsibility. Primarily, it's financial. Like, he just can't take on another wife, is what he's saying. Sorry if that's offensive, but that's just just how it rolls out. Now, verse 7. I love what the writer does here. It's in parentheses in your Bible, perhaps, which didn't exist in the ancient text, but it was a way of identifying that the writer is letting us in on something that maybe even the hearers of this back then didn't quite understand. It says, now in earlier times in Israel, for the redemption or transfer of property, property to become final, one party took off his sandal and gave it to the other. So introducing this ancient method of like, this is the sealing of the transaction. So then in verse 8, so the kinsman redeemer said to Boaz, buy it yourself, and he removed his sandal. So the deal is done. Boaz creatively and cunningly gets both the land and the woman. So he's a winner all the way around. Yes, who whistled? Let's give it up for Boaz. Okay. Um, Then, verse 9, Boaz announced to the elders and all the people, Today you are my witnesses that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilian and Milan. Those are the two sons. I have also acquired Ruth the Moabitess, and this is so interesting. It's just free stuff. Ruth the Moabitess, comma, Milan's widow. Now we know who she was married to. And secondly, this is the first time Ruth has ever been paired with her husband's name. And so there's all this movement towards redeeming these two women. And here we have the first sign of it where Ruth is now identified into the family. And I have acquired Ruth. Milan's widow as my wife in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property so that his name will not disappear among his family or from the town records. Today you are my witnesses. The point of the assembly was what they call oral recording. And this is a standard line in oral recording. Then the elders and all those at the gate said, we are witnesses like we were here for this. And then they unload this threefold blessing for Boaz. They say, may the Lord... Make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you have standing in Ephratah and be famous in Bethlehem. Through the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman, may your family be like that of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. So it's like this nice poetic blessing that they give him for this whole thing. End of story. That's kind of the end of the story. And then the writer drops this in. So Boaz took Ruth. She became his wife. Then he went to her, and the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. The women said to Naomi, quote, praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a kinsman redeemer. 
May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you, who is better to you than seven sons, it's quite a statement, has given him birth. Then Naomi took the child, laid laid him in her lap, and cared for him. The women living there said, quote, Naomi has a son. It's actually Ruth's son, but they see this as a full redemption of these two women. Naomi has a son, and they named him Obed. Great name. And he was the father of Jesse, the father of David. And in case you missed that, the writer rewords this in verse 18. This then is the family line of Perez. Perez, the father of Hezron, Hezron, the father of Ram, Ram, the father of Aminadab, Aminadab, the father of Nishan, Nishan, the father of Salmon, Salmon, the father of Boaz, Boaz, the father of Obed, Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David. Notice what Matthew says in his genealogy. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of who? King David. Jesus was called the son of David. The son of David. And the prophet spoke of salvation coming from the family line of David. And so we have a couple of reasons that this story sits in our Bible. One, I suppose the right word here is that we, we get the legitimized history of David. Where did this guy come from? But we also see a magnificent, like, God just worked this thing in. I mean, if Ruth, if, if Naomi would have never taken the step in chapter 1 and verse 6 to go back to Moab, and if Ruth would have never taken the step in chapter 1 verse 16 where she tells Naomi, look, I'm not staying in Moab, I'm going with you, and you can't do anything about it. And if Ruth had not taken the step in chapter 2 to say to Naomi, I'm going to go work in the fields right here in Judah so that we can uh, feed ourselves. And if Boaz would have not treated Ruth, who was working in his field, as it turned out, the writer says, if Boaz would not have treated Ruth with respect and given her everything that she needed, and if Naomi in chapter 3 wouldn't have said to Ruth in such a strange way, I want you to go and ask Boaz to marry you, and if Boaz in the threshing room scene in chapter 3 would have said to Ruth, uh, seriously, you need to leave, this is awkward, and I never want to see your face again. I mean, God is really playing with a lot of variables. Are you with me on that? And so the story ends with, wow, they get married, that's so beautiful. But it actually turns into a story about another story, which is about King David, which is ultimately about salvation. And so the story is about redemption, the redemption of two widowed women, but it also becomes a a story about the redemption of the world. And so we read Ruth, and we know that, and we think, wow, this means that I get what I want if I'm faithful. Maybe I get a spouse. Maybe just, just like this. Or maybe I get the things that I need. But it actually turns out that what this story is communicating is, is that you get Jesus. You get Jesus. And out of God's faithfulness to us, 
He sends Jesus. And so the closing of the book is very remarkable. It's the ending of one story and the beginning of another, which is the beginning of a massive story about salvation. But here's the interesting thing. Ruth and Naomi, and Boaz for that matter, had no idea personally that any of this story was unfolding through them. They were just moving through life step by step, day by day, all in hopes that God would meet their needs. I'm assuming that sounds like your life too. And there are moments when we see God moving in our midst, like, okay, this is a God, this is a God thing right here. But more often times than not, we don't see that. And we're just asked to make steps day after day, situation through situation. And oftentimes we're totally unaware that God is working behind the scenes. And there are times, again, when we see that happening in front of us, but again, it's often in reverse that we're able to put those pieces together. Let me leave you with a quote from Philip Yancey that says, Faith is trusting in advance what will only make sense in reverse. That's good. And that's true. And so, for you and for me, it's a series of questions like, what, what's my next move? What is it about where I'm at in my faith and my relationships, where I feel like God is telling me to move, but I've just got to make a move. Like, what's the, what's the next step? Only trusting that I'm going to make this move, and it may not make sense until I turn around a year from now and look back. That's a great definition of faith. It's not having all the answers in advance, but it's knowing that all the answers lie in the future And we're able to look back and see that God connected the dots, unbeknownst to us. And you got to know that Ruth is just trying to get married. And it turns out, as she's hanging out with her great-grandson, David, she has no idea. No idea. And so it's not a great ending because it sort of leaves us still in the dark about, well, I just don't know. But what you can know is that God knows, and you never know what He's doing through you and what He will do for you. And so again, faith is trusting in advance what will only make sense in reverse, because sometimes what's happening around you is making no sense. And all God is asking you to do is to do the very next thing, take the very next step. So to illustrate that, I'm going to have in a moment uh, my friend Kendra King come up and tell you her personal story. And following her, um, we're going to stand and do an old school responsive reading from Psalm 136. So if you want to turn there and mark it, uh, we'll be reading that together. And then we will sing a couple songs after that. And then following that, Jeff will pray us out. And then we're going to leave this front section of the stage open for prayer. So if you would like to be prayed with and for, you can come up front and there'll be some people uh, to do that as well. Um, So, in great CCB fashion, if we could, because she's nervous, let's welcome Kendra to the stage. And... uh,
Derek asked me to share my story and to talk about faithfulness. What is faithfulness? The dictionary says that faithful means true to one's word, promise, or vows, steady in allegiance or affection, loyal, constant, reliable, trusted, or believed. God is faithful. I found 68 verses in the Bible that have the word faithfulness. That's encouraging, huh? And we've been learning about faithfulness from Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz in our study of the book of Ruth this past month. Well, I'm sure that each of you have had some tough times in your life. Many of you are facing difficulties, difficult struggles with sickness, relationships, finances, and even loss of loved ones like Naomi and Ruth. But how do I know God is faithful? Well, I'm standing in front of you today after having gone through a lot in a few short years. Let me share with you a little bit of what I've been through. I'm here to say that God is faithful, and you can know that too. But to start out, I need to tell you a little bit about myself. I've had a pretty sheltered life. Both of my parents are still alive. My siblings are alive and well in ministry and missions. I've never really been sick, nor have my children. I've had a fairly normal life with its ups and downs like everybody else. I've lost my grandparents, and I've had a couple of miscarriages, but I've had a pretty good life. I was raised in the church and had a great home life. But a few years ago, it seemed like my whole world was falling apart. Some of you may know that my family moved to Atlanta from Florida. Well, one reason we moved here was that we had survived three of the four hurricanes that came through Florida in 2004, starting with Charlie on Friday the 13th, and we decided we'd had enough. But God was faithful. Well, I guess I need to back up a little bit to tell you the other reason we decided to move. My husband, Paul, was the pastor of a small church in Port Charlotte, Florida. We had moved there from Atlanta and were there for 12 years, where we started a Christian school and an after-school program. We worked very hard. It was a family affair. I taught in the school and the church, was on the board, did the bulletin, sang on the praise team. Erica and Josh were on the praise team and ran the sound and did our PowerPoint presentations. We all helped Paul in the ministry there. But it was stressful, and Paul thought he just had ulcers. But by the time he got in to see a doctor about his health, it was stage four colon and stomach cancer. His prognosis wasn't good, but we fought it long and hard. He had four major surgeries, radiation, chemo three times, was on a clinical trial, was on TPN for over a year, was on a morphine pain pump several times, was on oxygen, took all kinds of medications, had a feeding tube on his stomach, was in and out of the hospital 10 times within the first six months after his diagnosis, I think. And he was on hospice for over a year. But God was faithful. He provided doctors, nurses, medicines, whatever we needed. But during one of Paul's hospitalizations, our house got flooded from water pipes bursting, and we couldn't live in our home for over four months. And it was over the Christmas holidays. Do you know how hard it is to celebrate Christmas in a hotel, with your husband in the hospital. Then, after only living back in our newly remodeled home for a little over five months, the hurricanes came and destroyed it and our church. Well, after the hurricanes, we lived in hotels for about a month, then a condo for four months, and then we finally rented a house 
for the remaining six months we lived there. But God was faithful. We were alive. We had a place to live. And he took care of us. Well, all during this time, I became the mother of our small church, trying to keep everything together and going and taking care of everybody. I had some help, but it felt like it was all on my shoulders. I continued to teach, spending my days at school and my nights in the hospital, trying to juggle everything and take care of Paul when he wasn't in the hospital. I was trying to deal with insurance companies about our damaged home and cars and our damaged church property. But God was faithful. He provided churches and lots of people to help us with the cleanup after the hurricanes. People who brought us food, generators, cleaning supplies, fans, people who came and put tarps on our roofs, people who came to cut up fallen trees, take down wrecked playground equipment, move debris, and people who sorted through everything to help us salvage anything that we could still use. When we finally had to shut the church down, partly due to Paul's poor health and partly due to insurance companies not dealing fairly with the church and us not being able to get it repaired. We lost 10 out of 13 buildings on the church property and were trying to function in the main three, which weren't in very good shape either. We lost half of our congregation due to people moving away or being discouraged due to the damage, and it was just too much. But God was faithful. He provided a new church family for us when we needed one, and a church that paid to have our ten destroyed buildings professionally taken down and hauled away. So the other reason we moved back to Atlanta was because my husband had cancer. He probably wasn't going to live much longer, and we wanted to be closer to our family and friends here in Atlanta. So we decided to move back. But then I had to deal with moving, too, basically by myself. It was so hard to sort through our old house to try to salvage what we could, We lost so much stuff, which could be replaced, but it was the pictures and other things that couldn't be replaced that was really hard to deal with. But God was faithful. He provided Christian friends that came and helped us clean up and salvage our stuff. They brought us boxes and helped us pack, and a church paid for professional movers to move us up to Atlanta. And a Christian man that worked for the moving company came out with his son one afternoon, brought boxes, and helped us pack. Well, Paul was so weak by the time we moved that his hospice doctor said he wouldn't be allowed on a commercial airline, so I had to charter a plane just to get him up here. But God was faithful. He provided a Christian pilot who went above and beyond to help us and family who helped pay for the chartered plane. We flew to Atlanta on July 16th, took Paul to the doctor here on July 18th, where we were told there there wasn't anything they could do for him. We closed on our home July 22nd, moved in July 25th. Then less than a month later, Paul died. On August 21st, six years ago last Sunday. It was the Sunday after my kids had started school and two days before my daughter's 18th birthday. But God was faithful. He provided, and here's how. We'd visited a couple of churches in the short time we'd been back in Atlanta, and one of them which was First Christian Church in Roswell. On the morning of the second or third Sunday we were to have attended, Paul died. One of their elders had been out to visit that week and got to meet Paul, so he called on Sunday afternoon to check on us and found out that Paul had died. He came out to the house, 
that afternoon, shortly after his phone call, and brought the preacher with him. We didn't really have a church home at that time, and I felt really lost as to what to do about a memorial service for Paul. But God was faithful, and he provided. First Christian Church offered us the use of their church building, provided refreshments, brought food for our large extended family that were here from out of town, called, sent flowers and cards, came to visit, and someone from the church even gave me a lawnmower because I didn't have one. Well, the day after Paul's memorial service, I found a lump in my breast. I hadn't had time to get any insurance with moving and all, so the day after my insurance was in effect, a little over a month later, I was at the doctor's office. I was told that I needed to see a specialist as soon as possible and was scheduled to see one the next day. I had an ultrasound and biopsy that day and was told I had breast cancer. I then had to tell my children, whoa, the big C. I didn't know how to do that, so my brother-in-law and sister-in-law came over one afternoon and we told them together. That was hard, but God was faithful. He provided family support when I needed them. I had surgery the following week, but God was faithful. He provided ladies from CCB who came and cleaned my house for me right after my surgery. That was awesome and such a blessing. Well, I had a port put in, started chemo, which I had once every three weeks from November through February, and then I started radiation for seven weeks every day. I finished my treatment the day after my daughter graduated from high school. But God was faithful. He provided family and friends to support me through all that I had to go through. People who prayed with me, called to check on me, sent me encouraging cards and emails from all over the country, brought me meals, offered to take me to my doctor's appointments. Well, I'm sure this is probably way more than you all wanted to know, but I just want to tell you that I, I can get through that, that I've had to go through and know that God is faithful. Then you can get through whatever you have to go through right now. Trusting God because he's faithful. No, it hasn't always been easy. But you have to lean on him because you can't do it on your own. I know. My older sister sent me a message last Sunday telling me that I've been an example to her of joy in the middle of pain and strength in the midst of adversity. That I'm an encouragement to her. And she thanked me for my faithfulness. Wow. That was an encouragement to me. This is coming from a woman who's a missionary in Africa and a breast cancer survivor, too. I have known God's faithfulness through hundreds of people I've had praying for me all over the world and the wonderful support of family and friends. I've encountered God's love, faithfulness, unrelenting commitment. I challenge you to live out his love and faithfulness in your everyday relationships to be an example and encouragement to others. Because God is faithful in all situations, and we need to persevere through whatever we face.
So stay standing. Uh, we're going to read Psalm 136 in a way that um, it was written to be read, which is in response. And the way it works is um, the first part of the verse, there's 26 verses, the first part of the verse I will read, and then you will say uh, the phrase, which I think we have on the screen here in a moment, but you will say the phrase, His love endures forever, which is written at the end of each of the 26 verses. If you're keeping the Hebrew score, the word for love there in the text is hesed. And so, uh, and this is a very, it's a long psalm, and it was written as a, um, in retrospect of all the things that the people of Israel had been through. And so some of the language is very, um, it's very, it's very direct. And so, but it's a way for, it was a way for them to, as a congregation, when they gathered, to just remember God's faithfulness through the worst of circumstances. And so I'm going to, we'll do this together. I'll read the first part and you will say his love endures forever. And when we, uh, it's, again, it's 26 verses, so just buckle in and, um, and respond uh, as we go and then we'll sing together. It begins like this, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. Give thanks to the God of gods. Give thanks to the Lord of lords. To him who alone does great wonders who by his understanding made the heavens, who spread out the earth upon the waters, who made great lights, the sun to govern the day, the moon and stars to govern the night, to him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt and brought Israel out from among them with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, to him who divided the Red Sea asunder and brought Israel through the midst of it, but swept Pharaoh and his army into the Red Sea. To him who led his people through the desert and who struck down great kings, killed mighty kings, Sihon, king of the Amorites, and Og, king of Bashan and gave their land as an inheritance, an inheritance to his servant Israel, to the one who remembered us in our low estate and freed us from our enemies and who gives food to every creature. Give thanks to the God of heaven. Water you turned into wine Open the eyes of the blind There's no one like you There's none like you Into the darkness you shine Out of the ashes we rise There's no one like you there's none like you. Our God is greater. Our God is stronger. God, you are higher than any other. Our God is healer, awesome in power. Our God, our God, yeah. Into the darkness you shine 
Out of the ashes we rise. There's no one like you. There's none like you. Our God is greater, our God is stronger, God you are higher than any other, our God is healer, awesome in power, our God, our God, oh, our God is greater, our God is stronger, God you are higher than any other, our God is healer, Awesome in power, our God, our God, We lift this up together. If our God is for us, who can be against us? We just cry out because of his enduring love and his faithfulness. We sing. Oh, if our God is for us, then who could ever stop us? And if our God is with us, then what could stand against? Oh, if our God is for us, then who could ever stop us? And if our God is with us, then what could stand against? Oh, what could stand against? We sing our God. Our God is greater. Our God is stronger. God, you are higher than any other. Our God is healer, awesome in power. Our God, our God, oh, our God is greater. Our God is stronger. God, you are higher than any other. Our God is healer, awesome in power. Our God, our God, yeah. And if our God is for us, then who could ever stop us? And if our God is with us, then what could stand against? So if our God is for us, then who could ever stop us? And if our God is with us, then what could stand against? Oh, what could stand against? Amen. Let's sing this together. His love endures forever. His love endures forever. His love endures forever. Forever. We lift that up over and over again. We sing. His love endures forever. His love endures forever. His love endures forever, oh, forever. Oh, again we sing, His love endures forever. Oh, His love endures forever. His love endures forever, forever. Oh, forever, God. 
God is faithful forever God is strong forever God is with us forever yeah we sing forever God is faithful forever God is strong Oh, forever God is with us, forever, forever, forever. Oh, forever. God is strong, forever God is with us, forever, one last time just the voices lift up, forever God is faithful, forever God is strong, forever God is with us, forever. Oh, forever.